Hey guys, before diving into the episode, as we're pro-innovation medical education, we'd like to shout out something that'll take your suturing skills to another level. Whether you want to be a surgeon, work in ED or be a medic, you will one day face a wound that'll require closing. My Suture is an all-in-one high-fidelity suture practice kit and a digital learning platform that gives you direct access to surgical advice and training. The idea is that you can learn to suture anytime, anywhere. Search it up at mysuture.com and invest in your ability to suture. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Richard Scott, who's the Chief Medical Officer at Genomics England and also a consultant and honorary associate professor in clinical genetics at Great Ormond Street Hospital and the UCL Institute of Child Health, where he focuses primarily on diagnosing children with multi-systemic disorders. He has many accolades, a lot of things we want to touch on about, but um, a massive pleasure having you on the show today, Richard. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm great. Thank you for inviting me along. Really glad to join you guys. No, it's our pleasure. I know you're kind of, you know, a big boss at Genomics England, the chief medical officer, but, you know, tradition with the podcast is kind of share a bit about your story, your background, how you kind of started on your medical journey, and then kind of fast forward to where we are today. Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? When you look back at sort of working out how you arrived in a particular <laughs> place. Um, I guess when I was at school, I didn't, I was always quite sciencey. I think I liked the sciences. And to be honest, I wasn't very good at lots of the other things. So I just knew that that was the, the, the sort of the, the bit that my brain worked best on. And, mm-hmm. and I was really interested about it. Um, and my family was a bit sciencey too. So I remember, I actually remember my dad reading to me about the discovery of the structure of DNA. That's how like, geeky I was. <laughs> um, but I was, so I was always drawn to that sort of stuff. But I was also really drawn to the, the, the human, and the, like, the personal aspects of medicine. So when I was at school, I did work experience and voluntary work at a children's hospice. Mm. Or no, actually first at a children's special school, mm. um, where actually um, I then to met lots of the sorts of children I see today in clinic and I didn't it didn't even cross my mind at the time that this was going to be something that was relevant later in my career I just really enjoyed spending time with them and sort of understanding about the sort of you know about their lives and and so on and then when I I I ended up choosing medicine because I kind of worked out that I liked that mixture of 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 the science but also making it making a real impact for for people and having those those direct connections into actually making a real impact in people's lives yeah um and and again when i was in medicine i knew i wanted to do something that was kind of again at the sciencey end of things because medicine you can go you can do all sorts of different careers can't you in medicine it can be something that's really practical with your hands through to something that is you know you could be a lab scientist Mm. through to someone who spends a lot of time talking to people and and so on and again i guess i knew i wanted to do something quite sciencey um but i also really liked the human stories and those interactions i had with Mm. families and again again I, i do think this influenced me that i did in the summer job i worked at a children's hospice Mm -hmm. um because I there was one um, in in Oxford where yeah. where my parents lived, um, and again I met children again who I've now exactly the sorts of children that I see in clinic and look after. And I think without even quite knowing it, I was drifting in the direction of this part of medicine. That yeah. I could see there was so much need for these families, where often there was there weren't answers. Nobody knew what was wrong mm. with you know with their child, but they could see the sort of struggles they were having and often the lack of treatments and so on um and so yeah to, to i found myself actually one of my friends when i i, I ended up training in pediatrics yeah one of my friends i remember saying on a ward round oh rich you should do clinical genetics and i'd never <laughs> even heard of it as a specialty and i ended up and and so when she said it I can't remember quite how much I had to ask her about what, what she meant by that. I think maybe I didn't know about it as a specialty, mm. but I quite quickly realised that it sort of got um, it got the best out of me. Mm, yeah, and I guess and then took me sort of in a direction through. I did a PhD, which was quite labby, 
and then into a sort of clinical career where because medicine's changed so much in the last 10 or 15 years, particularly in genetics, the mm. sorts of things that we can do for families yeah. and it's changing lots still now. It's just such a, um, I feel like it's a really important time to be in this part of medicine to make Definitely. sure that we make the most of it, but also do things in the right way to make the most impact for families. Definitely. Tell yeah. us a bit about what clinical genetics actually entails. It's like a niche within a niche, I'll say. A lot of, definitely the general public don't know too much about it. Um, but I'm more interested to hear, is there real life applications? Because all you hear is the slabs and you're kind of trying to sequence the whole genome, but mm. are there any real life benefits? Are people actually getting help from it? Yeah, so... Um... So I guess there's different things. There's one thing like for, for people who are listening who are medics and who might have heard of clinical genetics as a specialty. And that's one thing which actually there have been clinical geneticists for quite a few years now, well before we could do lots of the labby side yeah. of things. Mm. And um, there have always been questions from families and the sorts of families I saw, whether it's in children's hospices or in special schools or, um, um, or in specialist particularly specialist hospitals, but a lot of the children who um, end up you know, needing a lot of medical care, it's off, um, quite a lot of those children, there is an underlying genetic cause for their, for their difficulties. Um, and um, often that boils down to some quite simple cause where there's one misprint or spelling yeah. difference somewhere in the, the three billion letters of their genome, mm. which has meant that um, they're very likely to have quite serious problems in some cases, you know, very hard to treat seizures, mm. let's say, or um, or uh, being very prone to certain infections so that they have to be really very careful and maybe need a, even need a bone marrow transplant mm. to protect them. And so from early on, even before we had tech, clever technology, there were questions that people asked, at least, you know, what's, what is, what's happening to my child? Yeah. And you know, what, what could we say about how we look after them better, what what things should we avoid for them, whatever. Um, the science has changed like so much in particularly the last 15 years, but 15, 20 and more years. Mm -hmm. So that now we're moving, we're in a better place, yeah. but we're not in a like the place we want to be in. And I think there's one thing is this specialty, this niche specialty of clinical genetics where there are a few hundred consultants say and that um, more than that genetic counselors in the UK who like, really focus on that yeah but actually what you know so much of um, healthcare could be helped by better understanding of genetics and you know there's really there's a future where genomics and sort of looking at something to do with your, your genetic code can help steer how you're looked after best just like we take it for granted you do like mm. full blood counts or yeah. x-rays yeah. it's just will will become part of everyday healthcare and at the moment we're on this cusp where that's just opening up and we're not there we're miles from being like where we where we would really like to be yeah but now in my day-to-day -day, um so for example when i do sit in clinic i often meet families where over the years, I, I meet families where I've, I've known the child for, since they were born, oh, wow. I met a child the other day in clinic. I, I, I met him first in 2012 <laughs> um, and um, he was a little baby on the ward at Great Ormond Street and we didn't know what was going on with him, why, why he was having his trouble, the troubles he's had. They've come to see us so many times in clinic. Mm. Um, and then now we've got technology where instead of it being a bit like, you know, the... Um, uh, there's an old TV series called House where it was all about yeah. like being terribly clever about, you know, <laughs> you need the cleverest doctor ever to solve your problem yeah. and find out what's going on. Mm. Uh, and it, whenever you need the cleverest doctor, you're in real trouble. Yeah. Like, like, the system needs to change. So you don't need clever doctors. You need, you know, clever systems. Mm -hmm. Now we're in the world where instead of what I used, my job used to always be about, can you work out what might be going on? What the very targeted test you can mm. ask for that nobody apart from an ultra specialist would know about um to now what we can do which is saying if, if families want us to we can sequence through the, the whole genome often of the child and both parents together yeah. and run some clever computer algorithms over it saying can you help us work out what might be the cause of this rare condition and then with the help of lab scientists you still need 
some clever lab scientists mm. to help you out, but suddenly get to answers that yeah. there's no way you could have got to before. And that's become, during my time as a consultant at Graham Street, which is only um, 10 or 11 years, yeah. that's gone from science fiction to reality, like the most common test I do in clinic. Um, I'm, that's, it's still relatively niche. So that's in, you know, um, in situations where children have complex conditions that mm. we're trying to understand is becoming much more day to day in say cancer treatment, mm. where you can say, what is it that um, it, the genome, the genetic code of a, the cells in a cancer mm. um, are, have lots of errors in them. And that's what drives the cancer. It turns out that's been something that's been known about for years. Mm. And increasingly using different types of genetic testing, looking at someone's tumour if they have a cancer, mm. can help you work out what cancer it is, how to treat it best, what the, maybe that idea in the ideal world sometimes, like what the Achilles heel is, yeah. if you like, of the cancer. You're like, wow, we've got a really targeted treatment. So it's beginning to be um, more useful there. Mm. Where we... Well, you know, but there are a number of ways in which like, there are big steps for us that we can take mm. forward in a number of areas. There's one is like increasingly there's some, um, the, the idea of targeted therapies is something which yep. is still, for the families I see with rare conditions, it's still few and far between where there is something mm. really meaningful where yeah. you can make a real difference. It's beyond finding answers for people or, um, or giving advice on things to look out for or what, what to expect, mm. um, how to monitor the healthcare, but something really meaningful like, you know, we've got a medicine that can actually really um, make a difference to your 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 care um, based on the, the condition you have. But there are some, some examples now. So there's a really amazing one with a condition called spinal muscular atrophy okay. that um, has come out in the last few years where these children who, you know, really struggled to breathe from the you know from the day they were born mm-hmm. there's a really meaningful treatment that can be given to impact on that and that's something that like even five years ago i wouldn't have believed yeah. and we <laughs> feels like we're on the cusp where the technology for making diagnosis has like yeah. revolutionized yeah. and we're in a position now where ho- hopefully we can also be really making progress on on treatments Definitely. as well and that's um that's i guess yeah, that's a really nice example of how like we're we're on the cusp of something. Yeah, amazing. What's the public reaction to when you're in a clinic and you suggest why don't we sequence your uh, your genes? Because I assume patients are very comfortable with hearing blood tests and trialing certain drugs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when you suggest that, what's their current understanding and their response usually? Um. It's interesting. It's quite um, there's different aspects of the of um, the response. Quite often, um, families are really clued up, um, and they're often they're, one thing is they're often surprised that it's available on the NHS. Okay. We, I haven't had this in clinic, but we've certainly had stories of people recently who said, um, you know, they come into clinic and they said, oh, I want, I'm, you know, I've I've been, um, I know that in America you can get this testing done and in, in a, a handful of places, um, you know, could I, how, how do I do that? Yeah. And the doctor said, actually, do you know what? That's something that's just available in the NHS and their jaws hit the floor. So <laughs> one is sort of, actually people are often surprisingly clued up, um, particularly in these contexts where, because in rare disease, people are often, yeah. they've spent years trying to find an answer mm. and they become real experts. Um, other, um, there are some families where it feels like something, you know, something quite full on that there may be, I get, and I guess that's, um, that's sort of what you, you were asking about that, mm. um, they need to think more carefully about. May, the main discussions I have with families when you sort of explain about it is, uh, in, you know, it's, we're doing this because there are important questions we want to answer. Mm. And when you do the testing, um, while it sounds, you know, you, we do for whole genome sequencing, which is the sort of the commonest test I use in genetic testing. It's, it's definitely not the only test. There are many, you know, most genetic testing is at the moment still much more targeted. Mm. But for whole genome sequencing, you do get the computers to read out those full three billion letters. Oh, wow. But actually, it's not that you 
have that a human or some person can suddenly say, oh, look, here's all everything we can know about the genome um, in front of you. You have to, if you like, ask a question of the genome yeah. beyond okay. just saying, what's the genome? And um, so we're always, you know, talking about what is the question we're trying to ask for this family and what we, if you like, like using the genome to do. So mm. for the families I see, it's about saying, being very clear. We're looking at your genetic information together to try and understand you know, there, there might be hundreds, if not thousands of different bits of the genome we know could be the cause of your yeah. child's mm. condition. We'd like to see if we can spot any um, any changes in any one, one of those bits. It's not that we're going on a sort of trawling exercise yeah. to look at things that are relevant about them as adults yeah. or about other aspects of their health and so on. Yeah. So, and, and generally when you um, explain that and to be honest it's this very similar conversation at the moment with lots of people lots of people from a clinical background mm. because it's something that's quite new when you explain it to people what the reality of using these technologies is mm. actually which is quite um simple and quite like other bits of healthcare it's like doing an mri scan mm. if you like um they're all like they're these clever technical things that none of us understand every different aspect of how it's all put together but if you boil it down to what what question am I trying to ask with this clever technology and what is it that I as the family or the patient are saying I want the clinical team to do and to be clear on that they're, they're, they're generally people are really quite comfortable Amazing. Um, but there are there are differences in attitude mm. have, have you had any instances where they've been very reluctant or very anxious about taking that offer on or that particular test I've had, I think over the years, mate, I've had a handful of families um, and that's not necessarily to do with what sort of test. Mm. There's also questions about, some families don't want um, also, you know, different different sorts of reasons, but um, particularly when we're saying at the moment, um, uh, we're, you know, often we're trying to find an answer for families who've been, look, you know, struggling for years mm. with, you know, because they know their child's got a, a rare condition that we're trying to understand. Sometimes, um, sometimes people don't, for very understandable reasons, don't want to be medicalised, if you like. Yeah. And so it's less about the technology particularly. It's just about spending all this time with doctors who seem to be doing nothing useful. And like sometimes, and that's, that's the situation where I've had families and we have the conversation about when is it right to do more testing yeah, yeah. and when is it right just to let people get on with things a bit more and there's a balance but um yeah i think um mostly people are really i mean i think i think the, the big thing is the you know the advances we've had mean that we can be more useful and where i think where where, where there's useful stuff to be done mm. um particularly for me where i'm work, you know working with families often with children if there's useful stuff to be done we can be genuinely useful people are um you know unsurprisingly yeah. they're, they're like absolutely you know very keen that we um that we help their, their children anyway we can no, definitely absolutely. and that kind of brings us on nicely onto genomic singling i was kind of doing a little mini test among my friend circle and kind of members of our community and no one has a clue what genomic singling is to be fair i'll be honest unless, until i heard about it you kind of never <laughs> pay much attention to it and i think like you said unless you're afflicted or kind of in an environment where clinical genetics it's become your day-to-day -day life or you know you have a child born with a syndrome you're you're completely averse to it so if you don't mind sharing what genomics england is and what's the the sole purpose and goal is um so genomics england you know our, our goal genuinely is you know not to be in the forefront and be you know to, it's actually to support other people in um and our, you know, our, our vision is a world where everyone um, receives the benefits of genomic healthcare, um, and that is by our role, which is to support people in the NHS delivering um, genomic healthcare, so healthcare supported by genomics. And, and um, at the moment, our focus is on predominantly on this whole genome sequencing, yeah. so supporting NHS teams who want to order a whole genome test in someone with rare disease or cancer. Mm. Um, and NHS teams who then use the uh, the data that we generate and the tools we give them to interpret that information and feedback findings to improve patient care. So that's sort of supporting mm. 
um, people in the, the NHS. And that's so we're, if you like, we're, we provide a service to the NHS for that. And then linked to that, um, sort of side by side with it, we also support researchers who, uh, for, for, for people and families who've said, yes, you know, as, as well as having um, a, an NHS test, or perhaps separately, just as part of a research programme, I'm happy for my data to be made available in a de-identified way, so with their names, yeah. and, you know, identifiable mm. stuff like that taken away yeah, and stored in a sort of secure computing environment, we call it a trusted research environment, for researchers who, want, who are exploring um, healthcare-related questions, so whether they're academics or from life sciences, organisations, companies, um, to say, okay, what, what are the discoveries we can make so that we're not just saying you know we can deliver genomic healthcare today with today's knowledge but we're also continually advancing it and our so our role genomics england there is to provide sort of tools and platforms to support those researchers doing those that, that amazing work mm. and then to link those two worlds together the healthcare today yeah. and the research and we we often draw out in the way we work an infinity loop where one side of the infinity loop, the left side, as we draw it, is healthcare, um, where patients who consent, their data can be made available to researchers who sit on the right side of our infinity loop, who make discoveries, but also feedback findings into the healthcare world. And our job as Genomics England is to support and enable That's that or mm-hmm. virtuous that virtuous cycle of two things together. Um, and, and crucially, also, and this is one of the, the like the the really wonderful things that I find about working at Genomics England and this bit of medicine, I guess, at the moment is, you know, there's one thing having, you know, amazing advances that we're really lucky. We're in a time where things are progressing fast. Mm. Um, But so much of this is about working out what, it's back to the last discussion that Mm. you just stimulated, which is like, what what do people people want and what's the diversity of views? Mm. This needs to be something which really makes an impact for, the community as a whole for you know the large majority of people um and it's not a question of what can you do mm. it's what together we feel is are the, is the right uses of these technologies where we you know often it's about working out where we expend our effort to make the biggest difference mm. um what but also exploring and so a, a part of our role genetics england is to sort of have you know dialogue we do sort of formal public dialogues with um, with communities, but also in various other ways. So we explore and like, what, what are the red lines about, you know, what people absolutely expect? So, for example, you know, insurance companies having access to this data? <laughs> no. no. Yeah, exactly. Et cetera, et cetera. But also, it's not just about red lines. It's about working out together what the best way of, um, of you know, tackling some of these questions is. And then often they're quite... You know, there's not like there's a right and a wrong answer. There's mm. like what what's the best way forward, and what are the the best ways we can tackle some of these really challenging problems without sort of just saying, do you know what? There's some difficult questions here. We're not going to use the technology at one end of the spectrum. Mm. The other end of the spectrum, there's like let's just charge in and let's just do whatever's possible. Mm. And it's finding that that way of doing it in the right way. Yeah. And so that's if you like the sort of a third element that is across everything we do which is our participants we have a participant panel who are sort of part of all of the governance and for example sit on our data access committees to decide which researchers can access their data they're in charge mm. um but to to make it about yeah doing those supporting healthcare and research but also in a sort of in dialogue with um with the public and and different communities which is a really important part of it you know the public isn't one thing it's like we're all different in different ways yeah and it's like working out how we how we make it as as, um as relevant and impactful for everyone as we can no definitely a lot of the work in genomics england seems to be driven by research and kind of coming from our background i'm conscious that certain communities are forward with research for kind of genetics at the same time you know Southeast Asian communities, they probably see it as a bit of a taboo. They probably start thinking, you know, genetically modifying kids and doing all these weird and wonderful things. How does that skew the research and data? And is it important we get these communities involved in this research? And what can we do as a community? Yeah, it's, that's, I mean, historically, 
in various different ways. You picked out well, an, an example of some of the sort of things that we can all perceive around us. Mm. There, but there, there are communities who I think have been really underserved yeah. by, um, well, by the benefits of various aspects of healthcare. Um, and often like healthcare and research, they're so hard to separate because yeah. you can't have advances in healthcare without research, yeah. whether it's like quite exactly what you call like research in inverted commas versus just sort of um, advances in general. And there've been, I think we see that in, in various different ways. And it's like, it's also driven by like, historically, which parts of the world mm. have had like big investments in research programs. So if you look, if you specifically think about genomics, Historically, so much of the genomic sequencing has happened in Europe and, and America yeah. and predominantly in communities who are historically um, had lived in Europe for a long time and so on, that, that there's a lot of skewing just in terms of our knowledge. Um, and I think um, that and some of that is um, just to do with things that you know, historically can't go back and change about where the money in the world has been. Mm. Um, and is, but also um, it sort of puts an, an onus. I think historically it's been far too easy for the healthcare world and, and research together as part of that just to sort of accept that. Mm. And I think that's one of, the, one of the things we have in our sort of our vision yeah. of you know, where we want to get to is the word everyone, where everyone benefits from mm. um, the benefits of genomic healthcare. And I think that's. I think one thing is that, that that's really hard because of the historical yeah. skewing of like just our knowledge about, for example, for me, when I sit in clinic with a family, um, you know, I see families from all over the country, but lots from London. Yeah. Um, and um, we, for, for some communities, we don't have enough knowledge to be able to confidently say, oh, we found this genetic variation in your family. Yeah. Um, think it's probably rare but we can't be nearly as confident about that yeah. as say in a family who are from another part of the world yeah. where lot where many more thousands hundreds of thousands have been um have been involved in previous genetic research so um resetting that balance um often people say talk about the need to be representative yeah actually often i think the way we like to think about it is actually being representative isn't good enough. What you need to think about is what you need to do to make sure you're offering the same yeah, benefits yeah. to everyone um, who want it. Um, and often, um, actually, that's about being more than representative, um, to be honest, and saying, you know, what? how many people do we need to yeah. involve from certain communities to mm. say, actually, we can offer something closer to a level, level playing field. Um, one of the other things that I think is really... Um, really interesting to sort of think through we you know one of the things we've done over the last couple of years is think of quite a lot in our we've, we've done some work on covid and trying to understand the genomic determinants yeah. of mm. severe covid so why people end up on intensive care um and i think um often it's less about um people often say people aren't so willing to be part of research or they're um, hard to reach and it's actually i think it's just a very sort of medicalized view of it. And I think this, the terms sort of underserved and, and sort of recognizing, you know, there are different ways in which to engage yeah. with different communities, Absolutely. but also that is right for people to engage with the work we do, that other people do to make sure that we together can set up a system where things are more equitable than they are. And we're really, we're, we've been really lucky over the last few years, for example, in our COVID programme to have the bandwidth to make sure we had a real focus mm. on making sure that the, the people involved in our programme were representative so we could be more, you know, closer to, you know, find, saying that our, the things we discover are relevant to everyone. Mm. And likewise, we, we've got um, you know, support from the government in the future to work really hard to say what is it that we can do to ensure the diversity of the you know of, of the people involved in our research programs in all sorts of different ways not just the communities they come from but also the um uh you know level of, level of deprivation that different um that mm. the people come from which is um which, which cannot sometimes correlate with community but is different and so on um 
we're, we're really lucky to have support to you know, make some difference there um, and to work with work with different communities and say what are the things that you know there, there's a bunch of inequity that we know about there's a lot we don't know about um, what are the areas that you think we we should explore most and which are the areas we should work hardest to work in? we're not going to like click our fingers and suddenly you know we, we've ironed out all of the inequity that is there but what are the together how can we choose which are the which are the bits that we can work hardest against um, first amazing on the topic of en- engaging different communities now so I've noticed there are a few commercialized products out there I think um, Google possibly run one where what they do is they let you find out your ancestry essentially um, and my friend took part in it and he found out that 15% uh, of his genetic makeup is from Nepal and it was just interesting so I just wanted to ask the question of with these commercialized products that are doing sort of fun elements to gen- genome sequencing, um, do you think it's a good thing? Does it break down that um, taboo of, oh my days, you're having your, your gene looked at? Um, do you think it's a good thing for the future of healthcare, sort of the NHS service and looking at healthcare in particular? Um, I think one, one definite benefit is um, I think it starts a dialogue that's a bit yeah. different sometimes. Mm. So it can be really helpful. We've actually one of the things we've been doing um, recently and over the years is doing some work on the sort of the language mm. around genomics and also some of it's just more generally about healthcare yep. research language. And that's that's something where you've referred to it earlier, but sort of ways in which things are perceived um for different communities and that you know um particularly being from a like you know as a medic you become a medic like i was basically still a child when i you you lose track of you know what you you know what what you do sounds you know different to different people you just like get so whatever but i think that language is really important and um so just back to your question about the, some of these private companies and so on. I think, I think, I, I think it's it can it can be really interesting mm-hmm. and some of the sorts of discussion and it's fascinating and in many ways, like truth is quite helpful. And for example, that people love focusing on differences, um, but actually some of the some of the um, some of the most startling things we know about the genome is like how similar everyone is. Yeah. And, and I think some of those things, are, so I think that's really interesting. Um, and also how, how unexpected some of our backgrounds are, like you don't know, um, you know, about your Nepali great-grandmother yeah, or exactly. whatever. Yeah. Um, I think also um, one of the things that we, I, well, I think I feel really lucky being part of at Genomics England yeah. and sort of actually being in the UK amongst a bunch of, you know, but actually amongst people like you mm. amongst, um, you know, there, there's some, some, I don't know, it's like welcome sponsored programs historically and so on, mm. where you can have conversations about some of these things in a way that isn't driven by, you know, it, it like just wants to sort of lay things out rather than trying to achieve one thing yeah. or another. And I yeah. think that's really, I think we're really lucky in the UK and I feel really lucky to be part of sort of that seat. Amazing. And I think sort of some of these, um, some of the sort of um, direct-to-consumer type offers, yeah. there can be a danger. I know there's a concern that that can, that can have a different agenda because sometimes like a particular organisation might want to achieve something very specific um, rather than just sort of together working out what, what we're comfortable with. And I think less, um, I think particularly when it, tra- it starts to go into the sort of healthcare world, mm-hmm. sometimes it can have unintended consequences. And one of the things we feel responsible for is sort of thinking about how we help set, I don't think it's necessarily so much standards or like rules, but it's like norms that, that, that people together have sort of said, like, normally we would record, we, we don't, um, for example, there's a very strong norm about not testing children for conditions that only affect you in adulthood because okay, yeah. we, the, the right to choose yourself about knowing stuff about you as an adult is 
you know, it's not written down in a law anywhere, but it's very strong and it's very clear. And while there are, you know, there are reasons where, you know, at stages of life where families are really concerned to know stuff about their child, because you know, they'd love to be reassured, for example, but um, sort of helping to establish norms, sort of sharing back experience of people who've made different choices and actually some of them regretted them. I think that sort of thing is really important. And I think sometimes just being driven by commercial um, uh, pressures mm. can can mean that we don't have space to set those norms. Yeah, yeah absolutely. While you mentioned kind of the norms and are there bodies in the UK that are regulating genetic testing, genetic research? Are there kind of laws to prevent you kind of taking that data and running? I know you said you don't want to search that information, but when people get involved in Genomics England and research, can they kind of be rest assured that someone else is overseeing it? There are rules and regulations in place. Yes, so um, there are lots of, there are sort of various ways in which we or, or other people like us are regulated. So, um, for example, there are, um, there are some sort of very firm sort of, um, uh, for example, that, that example I gave earlier about insurance, there's a sort of government um, uh, agreed moratorium on saying sort of they, um, insurance companies can't ask even mm. for um, certain types of, um, uh, of, sort of predictive genetic test results. They can ask people about their medical history, like you can ask about anything, but mm. they can't ask about that. So there's sort of some of those are some red lines of that nature. Um, then most of so our work is then covered some of our work just in healthcare is covered you know by the sort of general regulation that covers all sort of nhs work yeah. about expectations of privacy and the standards to which um data is is protected yeah. and we um we for example run sort of national systems which then have a sort of very high standard of expectation around sort of various aspects of sort of slightly geeky things to do with like you know how access to systems is um, control and the sorts of you know the, the types of um, uh, yeah the you know the way in which you need to use sort of clever multi-factor authentication and those mm. sorts of things um, and then um, there are and then for our research work mm. there's again sort of research regulation and um, all of our work is covered under um, research ethics yeah. um, review um, but sort of crucially that uh, you know, you, there's sort of very clear regulation. The thing that I think we think, I definitely think, uh, but we think is most important is um, the continued transparency and yeah. involving participants in like, knowing what's happening to their data yeah. mm. and making decisions about it. Um, because I think, you know, regulation is like, important in certain areas. The bottom line is, if you're open with people and let them control, it's their data, it's not our data, it's their data. Yeah. So being very controlled, they, they signed up, um, they understood at the time they signed up that um, these this was what they would expect with, to happen with their data. Um, and, um, you know, this is how we're sort of overseeing that and so forth. And that transparency and participant-led control, um, I think is, is actually, it's not regulation, it's but it's it's the most important thing in terms of making you know making sure people can feel comfortable that the right oh, things are happening. Definitely, and I think it's reassuring for us and our listeners to kind of hear, and kind of know. And I agree with your kind of stance on the transparency. I just thought of this, and it was a bit of curiosity: is with the COVID, you got the anti-vaxxers, and then you got the pro-vaccinators, and then particularly with genetics, have you had any resistance, any kickbacks? from certain organizations, certain populations, kind of saying, you know, you're doing research at a genetic level, which is too far, like you've gone too far. Have you had any of those issues or had to face that? I don't think we have. Um, I'll tell you what we have had, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really interesting to watch play out. So you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we began to, um, uh, to sort of learn as a, like a country yeah. on, like Twitter about <laughs> what the things were that made people more likely to end up in hospital and not. It wasn't like in medical journals, no. was it? You started doing it. And then um, like for the medical listeners, you know, you got started getting questionnaires mm. at work to decide how high risk you were. Yeah. So for example, my wife has got um, Asian 
parents from two different parts of Asia. Um, and she answered some questions. She didn't fall as high risk, but she like ticked enough boxes that were interpreted as like a bit higher risk yeah. than the boxes I happen to tick. I'm um, not Asian in ancestry for mm. those who don't know me. Um, but it was nonsense. Like <laughs> there was no difference between the two of us. Actually, like there were correlations out there. Yeah. Um, um, but there are things that are so tied in with other aspects of society. And there was an assumption we get the every time we talk about our COVID work. It's predominantly like medics and scientists. They're like, okay, have you have you found out why it is that different people um, with, in different communities are more at risk? Mm. We at the moment we we can't say that we've found out that there aren't differences because that's a really hard thing to prove. We can see that there are different things that influence the risk in the genetic code okay. in in all of us that um, maybe make you at slightly higher risk, slightly lower risk. Um, and we can see that that in all different communities. We also know that the main thing that influences risk is nothing to do with your genetics. Oh. It's much more to do with age. It's to do with other disease. Yeah. Um, and um, I think one of the real, really important things to um, that the medical world, particularly in the sort of research world, needs to understand is that the, you know genetics isn't. You know, often perceived as likely to be an answer where it's not, mm. and or differences in um, in between different communities are likely to be related to genetics. Where off, where often, you know, there may be some some cases where that's relevant, but often it's not. Um, and um, so it wasn't kickback, but it was a sort of a like a misperception yeah. that um, that the medical world had, and um, and I think that in some cases. There can be the danger that people perceive uh, communities can sort of perceive there being a danger that if you know you're doing genetic studies because you're looking for something that can explain away yeah. mm. inequities that are there for very different reasons and have got nothing to do with genetics. Yeah. It's quite convenient for like you know um, for people who don't want society to change in any ways in terms of equity and other yeah. senses. Yeah. To say, oh, it's it's down to genetics, um, which is you know, um, and are um, I think what's really powerful about being inclusive in the way we study and make sure that findings of genetics are relevant is that actually very often the findings can help unpick things which are related to completely different um, uh, reasons or correlations and so on. No, definitely. Mm -hmm. I do think sometimes there is a fear of manipulating genetics and saying that's the causative factor for x y and z when other factors are in play yeah. and there is always that worry um which is great when genomics england kind of comes in and steps in and kind of educates the community i think a lot of the thing is opening that dialogue kind of having these open discussions um what do you see the future in clinical genetics when do you feel it will be a bit more widespread a bit more common among general members of the public um, is it something that we have to wait years and years for do you see it on the cusp and it's going to be there very soon i think i think things are changing fast but i think there is a long way to go and i think there is there is a future where you know i've even seen it a lot in the last of 10 or 15 years um that you that what people understand about different aspects of medicine but include with genetics included it's like amazing how sophisticated a lot of people are yeah. because it's like partly it makes great telly <laughs> and um and and it makes it into the films not all of it right yeah. but like people actually know a, a lot and that helps um predominantly it, i think it what helps is it helps you demystify it and actually then have conversations about the bits that are important so lots of these questions are things um about people want to understand uh, i think what, one thing is at the moment it's really people really want to understand how what you're doing how you're using their data and so on and um often that boils down to quite sort of simple discussions hmm. increasingly everyone the public but also medics are getting sort of genomic literate just like they've got computer literate yeah. and all mm -hmm. sorts of other things in medicine and there's a you know there, there's a future quite a long way away where you um where genomics is there in throughout healthcare so for example you go like when when you hit 40 um the gp starts wanting to estimate your cardiovascular risk the chance of you having a heart attack in the next 
five or ten years or whatever. And they've got a clever way of doing it. But yeah. No GP needs to understand where they ask you your height, your weight, that, uh, they whether you smoke, whether you've got a family history. Mm. Um, there's a future where also there's a bit of a genomic test that is part of that that can happen in you know background and sort of factor in. Yeah. And it's all just part of it. Like you don't talk about blood pressure driven healthcare because we know <laughs> blood pressure can be used to inform some of these things, but mm. like it doesn't really matter. And genomics like becomes as much part of the day to day as that. Mm. I think that um, you know, where where genomics is like really part of the everyday is quite a long journey. Yeah. Um but already um it's becoming much more day to day. Um, you know, with its role in cancer which is something which affects you know more and more of us as we become an like an older society Mm -hmm. we're all collectively more likely to have cancer at some point in our lives and it's already routinely part of um, cancer diagnosis and therapy (laughs) there are other areas um, for example it's called pharmacogenomics which is like a terrible medical medicalized word for looking at genetic things to see what medicine might be better for you or what dose might be better. But that's an area which at the moment is quite, is only used in a few settings. But again, that's an area where in the future, that's just a really useful thing to know. Like, am I better on a higher or lower dose or just avoiding this medicine? That's another area where that won't be like a niche thing. It'll be something which is just needs to be part of the everyday. Um, and and then towards that, 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 again, those are sort of examples like that what's my risk of heart attack? What's my risk yeah. of cancer? At the moment, we're not there where that's routinely useful. Okay. There are studies examining, like saying, you know, how could how could that be useful? It's a bit hard to know when that will land, but there's definitely a future where ge- genomic healthcare is a bit of an archaic term. It's a bit like talking about a wireless. And they're like, yeah, of course, when I listen to a podcast, then it's not whatever. It's like, it's, it's like it becomes an old-fashioned term because it is just healthcare. Yeah. Of course, it's got... Um, genomics in it. Of course, definitely. And I do think you're right. I think medics do need to become a bit more literate in genomics. And I do think there will be a time in the future where genetics is just another thing like your blood pressure, like your height, like your weight, um, in kind of delivering health and healthcare as a whole. Um, I'm conscious of time um, and we'll probably need to wrap up. But the one question I forgot to ask, and it's probably more for our medical listeners, is we have a lot of doctors and specialists. We rarely get chief medical officers. What does that entail? What does the role actually mean? Because um, I'm sure a few people may be interested in that aspect of your journey, Richard. Um, so yeah, so my job um, at Genomics England is to, to, to be the, the um, you know, think about how we make everything we do relevant to patients and have healthcare impact and that's to both sort of think particularly about the bits of the work we do directly facing into um the um to the nhs and and patient facing but also to make sure when we're thinking about the research we support we're supporting research that's really likely to have an impact so that's the sort of like that's the you know what my role is sort of aiming to achieve in reality, like what what it means in the like a day to day job, it's like lots of um, I get I guess these roles. It's about um, working with like, the teams we have here at Genomics England. It's it's an amazing place yeah. um, with people who go from like computer scientists, you know, really hardcore computer science, mm. to software developers, to designers, oh, wow. um, to um, people who um, research how, you know, how people um, interact with services in the real life. And my, my job, together with the other clinical members of, um, of the organisation, there's only a, um, a small number of us, yeah. is to like, make that all work, glue together mm. and, and have the impact. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's about sort of tying those things together. And it's less about, I don't spend... I, I still do clinics at Great Ormond Street and yeah. where I'm a, like a doctory doctor when yeah. I do what people imagine doctors <laughs> yeah. do. Um, and, my, and my role at Genomics England is, is about sort of using what we know and understand from that, sort of that background yeah. to like, make our organisation, Genomics England, be really effective to what, for what our, the, you know, the, the patients and the participants in our programmes want the biggest impact to be. 
and it's it's really good fun. Amazing, no, Amazing. definitely. I think you definitely seem to have like a super cool job, kind of having your clinical side and kind of working with all these amazing people, which obviously you don't get to do as a medic on a day to day. But what kind of resonated with me is you're kind of trying to level the playing field, make sure there's no one community underserved. Um, and it's a big, big vision. It's, it's a vision bigger than ourselves and it's purpose bigger than ourselves. So I commend you for that to kind of continue what you're doing. And I feel this episode is quite enlightening particularly for us, because we were quite clueless about Genomics, Genomics England, if I'm honest myself. So I do hope people that are listening kind of do research Genomics England, look into what you guys are doing, the amazing work you're doing, the community initiatives you have ongoing, and at least become, like you said, literate in genomics. Because I think we do need to have more of that dialogue, more, less manipulating, you know, does genomics mean X, Y, and Z, and what we can do with it. And I think um, you guys are doing awesome work, and the future looks bright for genomics, I guess. Absolutely. You'd be... Having a lot more budding clinical geneticists, is that what you call it? Yeah, that's right. Um, Last piece, an advice for medical students, if they wanted to kind of pursue a path similar to yours, that are interested in clinical genetics, how do they get involved? Where are places they can kind of get a bit more of an insight? Are you happy for them to perhaps reach out to you um, on social media? Um, Just advice for them, really. Yeah, no, I'd be really happy for for people to reach out. And then... um, it, there's lots of it's a specialty where there are lots of different ways in. There are people who come from a pediatric background like yeah. me. There are people who come through adult medicine and so on. And it, it, you get in through the specialist training route. Um, and then there's there's good resources on the Clinical Genetics Society mm-hmm, yeah. um, website, which is uh, people people can Google and find, which tells you a bit more about the specialty. But I but yeah, I'd be really happy. Um, and I'd be yeah, thank you for having me. I think this you know as I said earlier, one of the really enjoyable parts of my role and our role at Genomics yeah. England isn't it's not like it's you know working in isolation it's about being part of yeah. these sorts of conversations yeah. and like you say getting to a future where everyone can benefit equally from yeah. genetic health it's a long vision and we like you know it's the right thing to work for yeah. it's not the work of a day but it's <laughs> yeah. only through sort of doing you know having conversations like this that we've had today that we can we can head in the right direction and also check ourselves on whether we are we're, we're heading in the right direction yeah, definitely Absolutely. massive pleasure having you on the show richard thank you once again for taking the time out i know you're super busy um and a massive thank you to our listeners